Welcome to today's Power Up Your Presence podcast. I'm Diane Craig. And I'm Sandra Corelli. We have designed each and every episode to help you power up, step up, and lead up your presence. A mix of stories, tips, insights, and conversations with trailblazers who speak candidly about their journey to leadership. In this episode, we will be talking with Brad Peterson, founder and president of Indico Limited. Brad was a founding partner of Tech for Kids in 2008, where he focused on building a best-in-class leadership team and grew the company revenues to over $60 million. In 2017, Tech for Kids merged with the Bridge Direct and created consolidated revenues of nearly $150 million. Later that year, Brad exited and founded Indico Limited, a Hong Kong-based incubator that invests in CPG startups and provides infrastructure for product development and sourcing. Well, hello, Brad. Good to have you with us today. And I must say that after meeting you in Winnipeg at the ELO conference, I knew I wanted you to be our guest and share your leadership, incredible leadership journey with our listeners. Hello, Brad. It's so great to have you with us. Welcome. I understand Tech for Kids was a toy distributing company for some of the most famous toys many of us will recognize, including myself. I I had many of these toys growing up, (laughs) such as Fisher-Price Classic Strawberry Shortcake, Light Bright, classic My Little Pony, Mashems and Fashions novelties, Pokemon Guests, Pac-Man handheld video games, Uncle Milton's Ant Farm, Star Wars science activities, three C3 sports construction collectibles, and many more. Brad, can you tell us what inspired you to get into the toy business? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your program. I can say that uh, spending some time with Diane was uh, incredibly impactful for me, particularly, Diane, hearing your journey, your story, and how you've overcome adversity in a really uh, incredible way. But I'm grateful to be here. And in terms of my um, uh, journey into the toy business, it was actually a happy accident. Um, I really was not planning to be in the toy business. I grew up in central Alberta. And when you're from central Alberta, you uh, either are in the oil oil field business or you're in farming agriculture. Um, Starting a toy company in central Alberta, it would be like starting a fishery in Saskatchewan. It's Mm -hmm. uh, not really a a common sense sort of thing to do. But uh, I was inspired by an article that I read in a magazine about a kid from California who invented a toy. It was a bit of a rags to riches story. And uh, I'd always been entrepreneurial uh, when I was uh, young and a kid at heart. In fact, my wife still claims I'm a big kid. Um, (laughs) So the toy business seemed like a good place to uh, try and and build an endeavor. And uh, so I started off, as you talked about, as a distribution company. We initially had a handful of products that we sold via kiosks. Um, well, we initially started selling kind of at carnivals and parks and things like that. Dem- we demonstrate things when you walk through a mall and you see somebody throwing something, a plane or a glider, and you'd be like, oh, that's interesting. We were those guys. Uh, mm. In fact, I, I consider myself that my initial training was just to be a carny. I was, you know, entertaining people <laughs> and once in a while would make a sale. So that's where it began. And certainly that's not where it ended. But it, every, you know, every growth journey starts with some initial steps. 
fabulous. Now, this ventures received several awards and accolades. All of them, out of all of them, which meant the most to you and why? Yeah, you know, this is an interesting question because we've received um, a lot of attention, particularly because we were a firm growing in central Alberta in the toy space, and that got us a lot of local notoriety um, and then national attention when we uh, started to qualify in the profit at that time was the profit 100 list. Now I think it's a profit 500 list. And for the American listeners, that's, I think, the same as the Fortune uh, 5000, the startup equivalent of that. But we, um, if I think back to what had the most impact, there's kind of two things that I would land on. Number one would be we won the Toy of the Year Award for our Mashems and Fashions product. Um, and this was uh, given to us by the uh, British Toy Association for the UK. Uh, came with a very fancy uh, uh, award, and that was really cool. But what it really is is it's validation that you know everything's created twice: first in your mind, and then in its material form that we we turn into as 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 humans. And to see an idea that I can remember when we concepted that out, I know exactly where I was sitting when we came up with the concept for Mashems and Fashions, and then to see it turn into a product that gets traction and then the market votes with their wallets that this is something they want to uh, support is, is pretty gratifying. And, you know, the ultimate test was, was the success of that product. And in the end we sold, um, I think we're up to about 500 million pieces of that product wow. uh, globally. So it was a pretty significant revenue generator for the company. And uh, that was validation. So that would be from a business side, what I would say is most um, impactful, but, Beyond that, um, the second is not really an award, but a action on doing what is right in spite of adversity. And I know we're going to talk about some adversity stuff, but one of our executives was attending a toy show in New York City, and uh, she was the leader of our marketing team. And while she was crossing the street to the Jacob Javits Center, she was hit by a, a truck and killed. Goodness. And oh. it was one of the... Uh, the most um, traumatic things that I've ever faced in business. In fact, when I reached out to my mentors and my network after that event, I I was trying to get find some solace and some mm. um, some ability to understand how to grapple with that, the gravity of that situation within the company as well as um, with our our staff. And you know, that on its own was a massive challenge. But one of the things we ended up doing is we created a GoFundMe campaign because she had left behind a young daughter. And we thought, you know, the, the right thing for us to do as a company is let's start a GoFundMe campaign in her memory to support her daughter and her daughter's future initiatives. And in the end, we offered to match everything that was raised. We would match it dollar for dollar. And uh, we were blown away by the um, outpouring of support from the industry as well as from just people who were impactfully um, responding to the, the story. And so we raised $400,000 US um, wow. through that GoFundMe campaign. And if I had to go back and say, you know, which award had the most impact on, on me in that business, it was doing that at that time and being able to, um, it, it's really not even about the money as much as it is. The money just measures the the uh, impact, right? It's a byproduct of doing what's right and the market recognizing that. But when people stepped up and, and supported it in that meaningful way, it told us that we had done the right thing and validated once again that it was uh, the right thing for us to do. So, mm. 
it's amazing how the community can come together when there's tragedies like this. And it seems like, in a way, you know, it was a continuation of your work as well, because you work with children, you know, like with the toys and um, and help educate them and guide them, I suppose. And then with this uh, young girl, I guess this was uh, a way to continue the work that you do in such a meaningful way. Uh, thank you for sharing that. It truly is a heart-touching story. And we know that it was not necessary to do, and uh, you did it. And and I think the, the impact that it had, not only for that little girl, but I think for everyone around you. And, and, and it validates you as a person, not just as a business person. So um, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you know, if we talk about, uh, and this is where we come to, you know, we talk about awards and accolades and uh, but before that, there were failures and adversities that I heard you speak about. And I would love for you to elaborate on those and how it really shaped who you are today. Yeah, well, um, I can tell you that um, the journey has been <laughs> shaped by some significant adversities. Um, Although I would say in light of your story and the things I've heard about you, uh, one of my mentors used to say that if money can solve your problem, you don't really have a problem. So truly, I can say my problems are all money problems. Uh, you know, I, I had my family, I had my health, but certainly my wealth at various times in my journey has been uh, dramatically impacted. Um, so just going back into the story a little bit, um, we launched our first company in 1996. Mm -hmm. And in 2006, 10 years later, we had achieved uh, what we thought was a modicum of success. We were on the Profit 100 list five years in a row. We had earned the Canadian Business Youth Foundation's Fast Growth Award. I was um, nominated for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year. So everything seemed to be going well. Right. And the company was growing at a tremendous rate. Um, the challenge with growing a distribution company is that it's very capital intensive. You are buying product up front out of Asia, shipping it on the water, putting in a warehouse, and then shipping to retailers and giving them 90-day terms. So if you want to grow that business, you need more and more capital to afford the ability to do just that. And in 2006, we literally grew ourselves into a problem. And I didn't think it was possible, but I, I've now found out, <laughs> I've learned from my own experience that, you know, you can truly grow yourself into a challenging situation. And I remember one of my mentors saying that most entrepreneurs don't die from starvation, but they choke on biting off more than they can chew. Mm. And certainly we, uh, we found that out firsthand. And so we went into special loans in 2006 because we tripped covenants with our debt to equity ratios and a few other things. And um, suddenly we were facing incredible uh, adversity where we were the, the bell of the ball and had been this growth story in our local community in, in mm. Red Deer where uh, we were from. Uh, we'd actually had a, a significant number of friends and family who had invested into the company. In fact, had seven figures worth of friends and family money. And now it was all threatened because the bank was putting us in special loans and um, threatening to shut the doors. Uh, 
I'll save you the details in between, but literally we at the 11th hour found a finance partner that would come in, but only if we were willing to go through a restructuring, which is a very nice word for bankruptcy. Uh-huh. And uh, so in 2006, we filed bankruptcy uh, to clean up our uh, balance sheet and brought new capital in that allowed us to get a new start, or so we thought. And, um, you know, what that meant is that, you know, friends and family and all the people that were previously invested suddenly were underwater. And I can remember the uh, financial partner saying, hey, someday when you're successful, you can look after them. But uh, for now, our, our money is the priority. So we we were able to st- struggle through and try and save the uh, the company, but I will say that two years later we filed bankruptcy again. So not only did we did wow. it once, but we did it twice. And this time okay. it was to kill the company. Wow! But I say all that and tell you that story to say that my greatest fear as an entrepreneur was going into bankruptcy. I mean, I think anybody who starts a venture can't imagine that as a, a potential outcome. Um, but we lived through it. And what I can say is that, you know, there's a Japanese word for crisis called kikai. Mm. And the flip of that word is that it also means opportunity. Right. And I know you like Japanese. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what we've learned is that every obstacle can become your opportunity. Every adversity you can turn to your advantage. There is that flip side of it is being in yang. And if we hadn't gone through that crisis in 2006, and then the finality in 2008, we never would have led us to Tech for Kids, which you've already given uh, a bit the background of how that company was able to grow and succeed. So we took those challenges and in turn, turned them into our opportunity. Right. So learning from from these uh, adversities and failures, you know, sometimes you nail it, sometimes you fail it. And and I think that the, the word fail actually is a very small word that has such a, a great Im- negative, it has a negative impact when in fact, you know, if you look at the other side of the metal, it, it is uh, opportunities, as you said so well. And um, so what, you know, in terms of greatest satisfaction in business today, what what is it? What, are, what does it look like? What is it for you? What is the greatest satisfaction you have today? Well, there's a quote by Robert Berkelman, and I think it's incredibly profound. And I think it really describes where I'm at in my journey. Um, he said, the greatest mistake in business and life is not outright failure. It is becoming successful without understanding why you were successful in the first place. And I would say that if I reflect back in, on the journey and the things I've learned, which I've had a bunch of time to do over the last uh, 18 months, that has really been my uh, impetus is to focus on how, what did I learn? How can I systemize this into making it a replicatable formula? Or building enduring ongoing businesses. And the key difference with my um, plan now is that I've been a player on the ice. So using Canadian vernacular here, yes. I've been a player <laughs> on the ice for many years, putting pucks in the net. I know how to do that. Uh, in the latter years of my Tech for Kids basic fun journey, I became a coach, building 
leaders around me. Mm-hmm. And now I'm moving up to the box and I'm looking at the overarching landscape of consumer packaged goods and how I can find the right players and the right coaches to create success on the ice. And then obviously my version of ice is called business. So the number one thing that really drives me right now is identifying and empowering the right leaders who have mm. the fruit on the tree that say that they, they, that we have aligned values, that they probably have a few battle scars from life's lessons. I mean, Walt Disney said that uh, you may not recognize it at the time to the best thing for is a good kick in the teeth. So people have been kicked in the teeth a couple of times, mm-hmm. but have not lost that fire in their belly to go out and build something of significance. It just builds on their experience and their awareness of what's ahead of them and perhaps be more prepared. We know that uh, life is not, uh, you know, straight up. There, There's ups and downs. There's the, the valleys. But when, when you are in the valleys, it's, you know, you can look back at some of your previous experiences and how you handle them and then how you move forward from that. And obviously, you've learned a lot from that. I don't know, you know, like after going uh, bankruptcy twice, you know, if, um, if you know, that is something that uh, scares you or you know how not to go there. Um, what would you say to that? You know, I, I would say that you, you alluded to this earlier, that the word failing, like I think there's a difference between being a failure and failing. Mm. Failing is a part of success. You cannot be successful without failing. We tend to learn from our mistakes better than we do our successes. So every great enterprise had a series of failings before they got their rhythm, their flywheel, whatever it is they were figuring out to drive their business forward. They learned from it. I could deconstruct virtually every company that has been a, uh, a massive success story uh, in the last 10 years and show you how they failed their way forward. Yes. Being a failure is when you get knocked down and you stay down. Ah, beautifully yeah, said. That's I so love well it. Said. And, and I want to thank you, Brad, for, for sharing that with us. Often people are reluctant to share areas where they have failed and, and people shy away from that because of shame and other reasons, but people can learn so much through your experiences and not have fear of failing. And often that fear of, of failing will hold us back. So your openness and willingness to share, others can learn from and other entrepreneurs can learn from as well. So thank you for that. You, you mentioned a little earlier that uh, when you founded Tech for Kids, one of your greatest focuses was building the best-in-class leadership team. Tell me a little bit about what you looked for in your leadership team and what capabilities you feel are most important. So for sure, I'm going to talk about that, but I want to just describe maybe what many entrepreneurs are facing in their businesses and why they need to think about hiring people differently. Yeah. Um, I, for the longest time in my career, was the rainmaker in the company. And um, it's an incredibly exciting but draining place to be. Like, it may be really invigorating for you to do that in your 20s and 30s, but trust me, when you start to get to your 40s, and I haven't got to my 50s yet, but I can only imagine it gets worse, you start to feel 
um, a little less inspired to want to put in, you know, 18 hour days. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) Dan Sullivan, um, who's the founder of strategic coach, he talks about people's ceiling of complexity. And the idea being is that most entrepreneurs can think about two times their company. They can see a business plan to do it, but his challenge is think 10 times. And why 10 times is important because you know, with in your capabilities, there's no way you could actually achieve 10 times. You have to empower other people. You have to seek outside resources to make that happen. So um, I came to the conclusion after the adventures back in 2006 and 2008 that the only way that I was truly going to build something great is if I could surround myself with people who were better than me at their specific discipline and that i wouldn't be the smartest person in the room right and so uh that was tough for me because i was used to being the rainmaker and the guy who had all the answers but the reason that was draining is that you know when we had the marketing meeting i was leading that when we had the operations meeting i was leading that when we had that you know i would literally be in back-to-back meetings within a day and literally have to be in all of them because I didn't have anybody strong enough. I had a bunch of people who could do work and execute on strategy and be tactical, but the strategic decision-making was still on my shoulders. And there's just no way you can ever scale something. You basically are self-employed. You might think you have a business, but really you only truly have a business when you can leave it and it still functions without you being there. So we started the process of investing into finding best-in-class people around 2011. And uh, what that looked like for me was hiring people that uh, were probably employed because really good people tend to not just be hanging around looking for opportunities. Not every case, but I will say most likely they're gainfully employed somewhere. So you're going to have to go find out from your industry, your peers, uh, who they really respect who they think is world-class in one particular discipline. Um, Typically, it's a referral that would get me to the right people and then be willing to pay them what they're worth. And this was a really tough one for me because I can tell you that there was a a time in our payroll when I wasn't the highest paid person in the company. And that was a mental struggle for me to get there. Right. But I understood that payroll versus dividends, (laughs) very different. I didn't need to be the highest paid person on payroll, but I ultimately owned the outcome of the shares and the dividends and the value of the company. And, um, you know, our enduring principle that I believe is true is that if you hire the right people, they're free. You can't pay them enough money that they don't in turn create more value and then some than what you're paying them. So, of course, there's going to be constraints in every uh, entrepreneurial endeavor where you have limited cash flow, limited funds. But I would really encourage people, go find the right people by using sources that you respect who can give you referrals and they're likely employed. And then be willing to pay them, incentivize them, give them reasons to be on your team so that don't let that be the, the thing that holds you back from ensuring that you get the right people. And I can also say by about 2014, when I was sitting in our quarterly meetings with my leadership team, I was not the smartest person in the room as relates to marketing or operations or finance or sales. I had way better people in those respective disciplines, but I was the person who had the wisdom to see that by having that, 
I had built more value into the company that gave me a business, not just self-employment. And collectively, that po- the power that it gave you as a company brings you to the next level. And so in addition to the functional and technical capability that you looked for to bring in the best people, what were some of the other capabilities that you looked for? Well, first and foremost, it comes down to our core values. I mean, yes. you know, when we talk about people, um, there is, uh, and I've had this in the past where you've hired talented terrors, people who actually have incredible capability, but they don't fit your corporate culture or your core values. So the very first vetting process is, does this person embody, meaning they currently live a life that is in integrity with our core values as a company? So if you don't have that question, it doesn't matter the talent, we don't want them on the team. And if you hire someone like that and form your team, they ultimately will create disruption so that your good people leave. Secondly is references. Like these people need to be reputable in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and just that you would be able to validate that the fruit on the tree, that they really live out and embody these things and execute the way that you are expecting is, is in line with what your expectations. And, you know, I would say third is just a, a willingness to be vulnerable a willingness to show up and not have all the answers, but to participate to get the right answers. And that only comes from, you know, people who they leave their ego at the door and do, they care more about what's right rather than who's right. And um, that's, uh, again, that's a attribute within human beings that's not common, but to get the best out of a collaborative team that is uh, essential and all the other tactical stuff in terms of the you know of course if you're hiring somebody who's going to lead your operations team they should have some technical background that says they can do that work but quite frankly to me that's even a lesser priority than those first uh things in terms of culture fit humility and ability to show up and and re- and be vulnerable Actually, you know, Brad, I think this is a, a really good uh, segue to what I wanted to talk to you about uh, next, because we know that technical skills, you know, account for um, so much of the reason why someone get a job, keeps a job, and the interpersonal skills of that person is really important in terms of how they, you know, their value, how they relate <clears throat> to you, to the people around them. So that there's cohesiveness, there's collaboration, and you really work uh, as a team. I remember reading Henry Ford, a, a quote by Henry Ford saying, I don't need to know everything. Um, I need to know to hire the people who know, <laughs> you know, all of the things that I don't know so that I can rely on them. And that's how he built uh, the Ford company. So I want to talk to you about your leadership presence. because. You know, at Corporate Class, we have our own definition, and we say that leadership presence is about the, the ability to connect authentically, to build confidence in others, and it's to inspire and motivate people into action. What would you add to this definition? I think, by the way, that that's a really excellent um, well, thank you. definition. <laughs> 
because it embodies what my belief is the three primary roles of a leader in the company is. So leading an organization, there's three things I think you're uh, solely accountable for. Number one is to inspire others towards the purpose and mission. So keep reminding people, this is our purpose. This is our mission. This is our big, hairy, audacious goal, the thing that we're going to do to make meaningful impact. That is your job is just to be a constant um, voice to that within the company, every opportunity you get. Second is to build and empower a high-performance team, what we just talked about, finding the right people, put them in the right place, empowering them and turning them loose. And third is to create the space so that you can see the white space. In other words, um, you know, if you take a look at the difference between the good to great companies that Jim Collins talked about right. uh, or the built last, he, he talks about companies that started at exactly the right time, riding exactly the same wave of, of opportunity. And he talks about how much luck had to play into it. And the correlation of luck actually was very low and negligible, but there were some specific attributes that he identified. And one of them was that the leaders who had this level five um, capability, which he describes people who are humble, who have a cause greater than themselves, and they're not motivated by the money, they're motivated by the impact that this enterprise has, also created the time and the space to see the white space, see the opportunities where the company should be going. How should we be driving forward? How do we continue to grow our impact? And um, I think that your uh, definition really talks to about inspiring and motivating people, building confidence, showing up authentically, again, humility, and uh, putting the mission and purpose of the company out of their own, um, of their own uh, personal interests. Right. So it's not, it's not, it's not about I, it's about we, and it's about it, right? And just looking at the big picture. So, you know, Brad, you're a serial entrepreneur who's experienced the ups and downs of running a business, leading teams in good and bad times. So what is your, so, so this is a, a question that um, is dear to me in terms of like, what is your approach in good time and uh, your approach in bad times with your team? Because it's got to be a little different, I suppose. Well, I would tell you it's no different. Okay. And I would say that it's about building the discipline and rigor that will test uh, the the winds of adversity. You know, you you can't if you, if you've ever seen a, a, a sailboat on the the seas, you know they can't control the wind; they can only set the sail. And the winds will blow soft, or they'll blow hard. And by setting the sails, how they determine the course of that boat and ultimately how it navigates itself, either forward momentum or potentially into peril and washing up on a rocky shoreline. So similarly, um, I mean, I started Tech for Kids in 2008, two weeks prior to the financial crisis. So literally, I had a new company. I had a million dollar loan to get it going at 24% interest, which will keep you awake wow. at night. Yeah. And after all the funding and everything had come together, uh, the, the, the bottom fell out of the market. And I didn't, there was no market. I mean, we got a company, I got overhead, I've got a loan, and there's no market. But I look at that as an incredible advantage to be able to set the rigor and the discipline. And, um, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, gold is refined through fire. 
you know, a, a diamond is a, a lump of coal under heat and pressure. So mm-hmm. I think as a company, if you build the right rigor into your business and the disciplines, then you will sail when you have winds that are in your favor, but also be able to withstand the adversity when things change because you can quickly adapt to the changing markets and landscape. Because there will be additional um, adversity advantage. I mean, you know, we're closer to the next recession than the last. It, it, history says we're going to go up, the market's going to go down. So if you only build a company in the uptimes, well, in fact, I think statistically of the Fortune 500 companies, half of them started during a recession or depression, which means they use that adversity to help set rigor and discipline to avoid the, uh, the, the difficulties that would come their way. And in fact, Warren Buffett, I think he says uh, that, uh, you know, when the tide goes out, you can see who's been skinny dipping. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Well, you so, know, and, and yeah, go ahead. I was going to say good times and launching a company in good times, just build soft companies. I think that in the good times, your opportunity to prepare for the tough times because they're coming. Right. Absolutely. It, it never changes. And it's so important that team that you build, if they, you, you hire these people and they have the same value as you do, then when the bad times are there, they're, you know, they're also ready to, you know, to, to face. Uh, the adversities and and do what it takes in order to to ride the wave because nothing stays the same, right? Uh, it's down at some point. It's going to go up, and then we ride the wave. You know that it, it where everything is smooth, and then again it happens. It's just uh, how business goes, and I think successful people like you have learned to uh, understand the the ups and downs and that they don't stay. Uh, you've provided us with so many good, great little nuggets here that I'm learning and I'm really enjoying. And I, I thank you so much for all these um, um, thoughts that you're sharing with us and, and the wisdom that uh, you're sharing with us. And I think, Sandra, you have a few more questions. Yes, that brings Brad. us to our lightning round. So we have a few questions for you, Brad. Recent book or author who has impacted how you see the world? Yeah, you know, um, I would say there's two books uh, that recently have been very impactful. Um, The first is The We Economy by the Kilbergers and uh, Holly Branson. Um, If you know the Me to We movement and uh, what these guys have created, you already know it's pretty impressive. But Mm -hmm. this book is incredibly forward thinking in terms of creating social enterprise and aligning purpose, passion, profits, and that they don't need to be uh, compartmentalized. We don't need to have have social compliance departments in our company to sort of cover up all the bad that our company has done or not covered up, but try and make make it right, that we can build it in at the front end and create uh, what Collins would talk about enduring companies. So I, I think that that book has been very helpful for me to have an understanding of the future business and uh, and how millennials, as they become more uh, important to the overall economy, they're looking at transparency of companies and that they do more than just make profits quarter to quarter, that there's going to be something more enduring to their, their reason for being. So very good book. And also, second book would be um, Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. Um, couldn't couldn't uh recommend this high enough 
um, you know, this certainly aligns with my my Christian faith, but also just gives, I think, a 30,000 foot macro view of, of why we were created, what's our purpose on this planet, what is the purpose of work and how it makes uh, impact in a positive way to God's overarching plan for uh, the world, our lives and uh, those that we are interfacing with. Very good. Last thing you did that scared you. Wow. Okay. Um, well, I'm taking my pilot's license right now. <laughs> oh, wow. So, <laughs> um, Good for it, you. It's, it's, yeah. So it's, uh, it's a pretty exciting, um, well, I would use the word terrifying. So terrifying and exciting at the same time. <laughs> uh, and I mean, I love I love flying. It's an incredibly freeing experience. Um, it's it's intimidating because you're learning to fly a plane. You're learning a new language by speaking phonetically and understanding what the controllers are saying, and they speak fast. And I understand yeah. why because they got a lot going on. And then third is you're you're learning to navigate. You're learning to read maps and landmarks. So there's just a lot coming at you. And then uh, the other day when my instructor. We, we landed, we pulled over on the tarmac, and he stepped out of the plane and said, okay, you're solo. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. That was That's, the day I'll remember. For yeah. The yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. Habit or skill most people don't know about you? I am a um, world-class journalist, meaning not like a journalist in terms of a reporting, but I have a discipline around journaling that I started in 2012 to kind of track my life. And I've been a, sort of evolving it as we've gone forward. And I'm always amazed every December at the end of the year, I go back and review my journal at everything that I've written down. And we're very forgetful. Our minds mm -hmm. just, you know, we, we hang on to certain things, but we forget the majority of it. But having this journal has allowed me to really track the things in my life that are wins, losses, things I need to focus on fixing, and then whatever ahas came up from reading or listening to a podcast or whatever. And I just feel like it's such a wealth of knowledge that I've been able to capture since that time that uh, at some point I'm going to uh, probably do something with in terms of a book or I was going to ask, sure yes. At the very least, I think the most valuable thing I'll leave to my kids is none of my possessions, but this journal of my life. With so many lessons in it. So hopefully it'll turn into a book one day and we can read it too. Your favorite place to go on vacation? The interior of BC. <laughs> Which will be home soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, and and I, what? Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say I've traveled most of the planet. And I haven't been everywhere, so I can't say with absolute authority um, that I know what else is out there. But I have the areas I've traveled. There's no better place for me and my lifestyle than the interior of British Columbia, which if you're into outdoor pursuits, which I, I am, I love, um, it's just a big playground. Amazing. And what makes you most hopeful about the future? You know, I am... Uh, I'm really somewhat conflicted about what's going on in the world today because um, there's this sensationalized news stream that's constantly coming at us that's designed to feed your reptilian brain, which just to understand that concept, there's you know two things that motivate all human behavior. One is fear, the other is hope. 
And fear is the bigger motivator. It's what kept us alive from getting eaten by saber-toothed tigers, you know, thousands of years ago. And um, the media has figured out that you will think more about fearful things than you will be hopeful things. Therefore, the news that you have coming at you is 99% on that, talking about what's going wrong in the world, what's broken, what's sensationalized. And of course, we've got, you know, political landscapes that are feeding right into it. And it just makes it an ongoing conversation that's uh makes you have a view of the world that's negative right but beyond that i would say that i think we have in, we're living in the most incredible time in history most incredible time to be an entrepreneur there's you know if you look statistically at all the metrics whether it's the literacy rates the mortality rates you know on and on and on we are living at the very best time in history to be alive and you know when we were created, I believe God gave us a mandate that was unique to all of the creation. You know, if you think about the, the story of the accounts of Genesis said, God spent seven days of which the first six, he was taking the chaos and turning it to order and then uh, taking uh, the void and filling with creation. And when he created man, he said to man, he said, you know, go subdue the earth. In other words, anything that's chaotic, turn to order and fill it. And fill it was different than, than procreating. Procreating was described as multiplying. So filling it meant fill it, create things, build value, create within this planet. So we were get, co we've been given this mandate of being co-creators of God. And I think that despite all the challenges that this world has, we have this incredible ability to go and solve our challenges because we've been given that as a God-given skill set and talent. And I really feel strongly that we have several people, despite the negativity, that are focused on how do we advance this world in a way that's positive. If you go back to the Industrial Revolution, when England was covered under soot and that uh, ultimately uh, the creatures around were actually adapting to the color change, today London is one of the cleanest cities in the world. We had the ability to fix that problem. Remember acid rain in the 70s? Yeah. We fixed that problem, right? So we have the ability, the God-given ability to go and fix our problems. It's about awareness. And then we need entrepreneurs to rise up who are willing to embrace the challenge and solve these incredible challenges. But as we said, crisis has a flip side called opportunity. Mm. So well, so well said. And what a, an amazing uh, wrap-up, Brad. And, and, you know, the, uh, when you, you talked about uh, journalism, uh, journaling, uh, I, you know, I, I think of, you know, if it's worth living, it's worth recording. And uh, you're living your life to the fullest. You're recording it. And I, and I can't wait to read that book. I think that once you're in interior BC and you have some quiet time that maybe <laughs> something that uh, you owe to us uh, because of all of the experiences that uh, you you have and you can share in the wisdom and uh, what you've learned from it so that we can also learn from it. So again, Brad, uh, thank you so much for sharing your story and all of your learning with us. And I know that you're moving to Interior BC. I think it's the next few days. So a safe trip, Couple weeks. Uh, happy unpacking <laughs> and, uh, and enjoy the great time that uh, you will be having living there and, and getting to know the interior BC even more. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us, Brad. Hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Bye.
Bye-bye. All of the details can be found in the show notes for today's episode. Every morning, set your intentions toward your dreams. Some may refer to goals. We like the word dreams. It sounds more exciting and not so hard to think about. We hope to meet you in person one day at one of our workshops, or you may even decide that private coaching is more for you. We encourage you to go to our website at corporateclassinc.com for additional resources, blogs, and videos that you may find to help enhance your confidence and your presence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast. It's complimentary. And write a review. Thank you for listening to Power Up Your Presence podcast. The passion, the presence, the power. Until next time, power up, step up, lead up.